Welcome to episode 10 of On the Balcony. My name is Michael Kohler, and I'm your host. Today, we have a rich episode as we get to engage with a former prime minister who, as all of our guests, has been intentionally drawing from the adaptive leadership framework. Prime Minister George Papandreou took office in Greece on the eve of the Euro crisis in 2009, in which he practiced a lot of leadership, but also became a significant lightning rod for the underlying systemic challenges in Greece, Europe, and the global financial system. On the surface was a surprisingly big budget deficit that showed up when he took office, leading to higher interest rates in an uncertain market. Remember, this is only a year after the global financial crisis in 2008. And that led to even higher debt and worries of the bankruptcy with potential ripple effects to the whole Eurozone. But as you will see, there were a lot more and deeper adaptive challenges going on in the background of that case. Because this case is so rich, we'll spend this and next episode with Prime Minister Papandreou and his reflections on his own leadership work. As always, we'll ground the conversation in a chapter of Ron Heifetz's book, Leadership Without Easy Answers. This week's chapter is chapter 10 with the title Assassination. And it explores why leadership is a dangerous activity. The answer is simple, but not easy. At the heart of it is loss. People don't resist change. They resist loss and will do a lot to avoid that loss, including deny the problem exists or apply a technical fix, scapegoat someone, shoot the messenger or blame authority. In its most intense form, they will assassinate you, either in your role, meaning they'll fire you or force you to leave your role, or they might physically attack you as we saw in terrifying ways in the civil rights case in episode nine. George Papandreou has firsthand experience with the dangers of leadership, both in office, but also through his family biography, which we'll learn more about too. We'll hear about the strategies he deployed as prime minister, but also learn how hard it was for him to lead beyond his authority. For example, when he tried to reframe the challenge from being a Greek challenge only to being a European challenge. As always, I encourage you to read the chapter yourself. This is chapter 10 of Heifetz's Leadership Without Easy Answers. And here is part one of my conversation with the Prime Minister. All right. Welcome, George Papandreou. Very nice to be with you, Michael. Very nice to be with you. Great to see you. We'll start our conversation like we always do on our podcast, bringing a little bit roles and identities. And you're the, the first former prime minister on our podcast. And many people know that, but there's many more pieces to your identity. There's many more roles you're holding and, and you have held that inform the way how you think about leadership. 
and your place in the world. So I invite you to share a few of those. Who are you? Well, sometimes it's a, it's a constant search, but it also is you decide also what your identity is. For example, I'm Greek, but I was a Greek from the diaspora. I grew up in uh, California, Minnesota. I was born. I, then I was a refugee with my parents uh, in Sweden and Canada and then studied in England. So being a Greek was basically a choice and decided I, I will come to serve my country. I will come to live here. I will come. And sometimes I tell my fellow Greeks, you know, when you're a di diaspora Greek, you're doubly Greek because it's not just that you have happen to be Greek, you also choose to be Greek. But I think that also shows that, you know, we, we have multiple identities. And I think that's very important because we are living also in a world which where there are those who want to put you into boxes and to define your identity in one dimensional way, a very authoritarian. So uh, I like to be able to uh, bring all these multiple identities and um, actually they create a conversation sort of inside me all the time. Being a Greek of the diaspora, being a refugee also during the, during the dictatorship in Greece gave me a perspective of wanting to be a change maker because you, have, you live in different realities. And you say, well, I left this country because there were problems, as many refugees do. They leave their country because of their problems. But then that's potentially, they say, okay, of course, I see. And I go to another country where things are better, are different, where I can be free, where I can hope and have a different life. So therefore, that in itself makes you the person say, well, why can't my country be that way? Why can't I see our, my country change in a better way? Of course, I also am a, I have my father and my grandfather who were in politics and both became prime ministers. Some like to call it a, a dynasty, but um, dynasty has a very negative connotation. They were fighters. My grandfather went to jail or exile three times, uh, six times in his life. Uh, he was almost executed by one dictator when he was young. He was pardoned with a few others in the last moment. And he, when he died, he died. His, his nickname was the old man of democracy. And he died during the dictatorship. Uh, he died under house arrest. And his funeral became the first big demonstration against the dictatorship. My father was exiled twice, once with us as, as kids to Sweden and then Canada. But he was exiled also much younger. And that's how he went to the United States to study exiled from a dictatorship just before the Nazis took over Greece. And uh, he then uh, went on to Harvard and became a professor in Berkeley, California, head of the economics department, but also enlisted into the U.S. Navy to fight against the Nazis. So this was um, just part of, part of it. My mother, too, who is still around, 99, a longtime feminist fighting for changes for women and uh, When we became government in the 80s, I uh, was able to help through her movement and other women's movements also to pass some of the most progressive changes around uh, gender equality and women's rights. I, I can't help but think about the, the title of our chapter in Leadership Without Easy Answers, Assassination, as I'm listening to that family story of exile of, you know, being in those high roles of authority, the highest role in a country, and then being exiled and coming back and being exiled like that. 
that journey. And and a little bit later, we'll talk about your time as a as a prime minister and the the attacks on that role and the the challenges on 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 how to maneuver that. So I I can't think about a better guest to talk about this chapter here. It's it's really wonderful that you're joining us today. Well, thank you. So before we dive into your experience deeper, I just love to take a minute or two for both of us to summarize a few core ideas from the chapter. What stood out for you this time? I think there's a lot of wisdom in this chapter, and not only this one, of course, Ron Ron Heifetz is uh, both a mentor and a good friend. I followed this class uh, once when I was sort of left politics for a short, brief moment and got to the Kennedy School. And from then on, I've been always uh, trying to pick his mind in difficult situations or just around what the world is, is doing. But I think that what this shows is the difficulties of leadership and also how bringing change, helping the society or for moving the society towards adapting to new situations is not a simple process. Uh, there's uh, no easy answers. And it's, uh, it is a continual struggle where you really have to gauge where you are, how much stress people can take, how much change they really would like or maybe want. When things get very, very stressful, then of course things can get very, very difficult for, for any leader. He or she would be one to take the blame, rightly or wrongly. It could be right that they do take the blame, but there also can be simply that um, the stress is too much, the changes are too many, the difficulties are too many, and uh, then one looks for some other savior, if like. Yeah, that tendency to like look for somebody who takes the pain away has been a theme that we've explored throughout the season, and I think it really culminates here when people are disappointed that, quote-unquote, the leader is not taking the pain away or can't take the pain away fast enough, then they find a new one. When I was thinking about the title, it's a brutal title, right? Assassination. And I'm reading it as a metaphor, like one gets replaced, right? The role gets attacked, but it's also real. You know, as we heard in your, in your family story, it, it is particularly in, in political office, like there are assassinations. It's a life and death uh, situation sometimes when, when you're in these offices. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, and during the dictatorship, when uh, my father was arrested, I was, uh, I had a gun put to my head because I was hiding him in the spot and they wanted me to reveal him. But uh, then um, later on, when I was prime minister and I had to make very difficult decisions, very painful. I mean, that I, I, we all realized these were difficult decisions because this was a financial crisis. Greece had to make changes and uh, cut down its uh, deficits and its debt. And one of the ways was to cut wages and, and, um, and pensions from people who did not feel that they were responsible in one way or another. So at some point, uh, I got a lot of death threats. My family got a lot of death threats. There were lots of people saying, so this was a reality and, uh, and a difficult one. What made it worth it? Sticking in the game. I mean, when when this is so threatening, when this becomes so personal, people. I I remember just briefly when I think the first time I I walked with you in in Greece in Athens through a city, noticing people yelling at you. That was a few years after you got out of office. Still angry. What made it worth it for you to do this work and to stay engaged in that work? 
Well, first of all, I understand that very well. I'm, I think I can, I can understand the, the pain and even people yelling at me at times. I think one has to stay with it and uh, one really believes in what one has been doing. I'll get into this more specifics, but uh, first of all, if you are in politics, I mean, many people get into politics for many reasons, but we really think of politics in its very basic meaning. If we go back to the ancients, the ancient Greeks, with all their faults and all their, you know, there's no perfect society there either. The idea of politics comes from the, the idea of a citizen. Basically, it is the revelation that, you know, we actually can change our fate. Actually, we don't have to wait for a savior. We don't have to wait for some high authority. We don't want some high authority to concentrate power and decide for us. We, we, the people, the citizens, they were not everybody was not a citizen, but I mean, we, the citizens can actually change things. And we can imagine a different world. We can imagine a better place and we can see how collectively we can we'll deal with this and, and, and change things. So that actually the idea of politics is to say, yes, uh, let's get in here and see if we can make change. Let's be change makers. And some people actually have asked me many times something similar to what you asked me. They say, well, you were very unlucky. You know, you, you ended up becoming prime minister. You won 45% of the votes. You had a majority in parliament. You were very popular. And then you got stuck with this, this terrible crisis, which fell upon Greece because of the previous government. So you were unlucky. But I always, always say, well, you know, if uh, I was called to run, to lead the country in its most difficult moments, and actually that's an honor. And uh, now, whether one did it the rest best one could do and or not, that's another question, but it is. And running away from that responsibility would be like, well, why are you in politics? Then why are you involved in this? And of course, the responsibility will also means burden and it means, uh, you know, problems that you will face and you have to make some very difficult choices and they will be painful, both for those whom they affect, but also for you yourself, your own person. And they were, they were painful because they were not things I wanted to do. It was not like I wanted to cut wages that, that I was sort of happy to, you know, but I knew that if this was not done, Greece would go bankrupt for a number of reasons. Of course, one thing that I think comes out of this chapter, but generally out of what Ron, of course, talks about is you have those who look for technical solutions to these crises. And uh, that was one of the problems, I think, that um, Europe, maybe even uh, Angela Merkel was seeing. She had her approach, and we can get into that too. But then the different institutions, the IMF, the Central Bank of Europe and the Commission of the European Union, this was called the Troika, if you like, they would make decisions. They, they would see it more like as, as a technical problem. You just have the political will to make the technical issue. What were the technical problem? You have a deficit. All you do is just cut, you know, cut here, cut there, and then things are better. What I was trying to say is this was sort of the tip of the iceberg. Underneath, there were much deeper problems, like system of, of state that was not functioning well, a lot of clientelism, there was corruption, there was a lack of uh, expertise in certain areas, there was too much concentration of power and, and the bureaucracy, and we needed to decentralize. But it was also an adaptive challenge for our whole society about how we do politics. That was difficult for many to, to see. And as a matter of fact, so when I left 
the person that replaced me immediately, I, I was able to create a coalition with other parties to sustain the, the program of change. But a technocrat basically took, as did in Italy after Berlusconi, because the idea was, okay, a technocrat knows what to do. So this was just the idea of, of you know, you just need to apply a technique. It was much deeper, much deeper to change the sort of the whole way of looking at society and, and the way politics is done. In these times of distress, in these times of uncertainty, there are different types of leadership reactions. So one is like, okay, let's get back to normal. You know, we're, we've lost the normalcy. We've lost what we had before with the financial crisis. We've had it now with the pandemic. Let's just get back to normal. What that basically is telling people that this is a technical issue, you know, that all we need is, you know, the doctors to tell us what to do for our health. While it actually is a much deeper adaptive process, this is a, this, you know, climate change has dealt us a blow with the viruses, but also the financial institution have dealt us a blow that maybe how our banks are working, maybe how we spend our money, how we bring in more transparency, how we fight corruption, a clientelistic system, which seemed to work, you know, people could get their ways, but uh, in the end, it was not productive. And it was creating huge dependencies of people on who has the power and who has connections and so on. How do you liberate people from this and take their own responsibility and become more productive, more free and so on? So going back to normal is in one way, very passive. It's not creating the capacity of society we lose an opportunity from this crisis to, if you just want to go back to normal. Because obviously, going back to normal means going back to where the problems actually began and repeating them. Then, of course, we have this assassination, but it's a different type of assassination. It's not assassinating authority. It's, it's basically finding a scapegoat and then assassinating the scapegoat, literally or metaphorically. So it's the foreigner, it's the migrant, it's the refugee, it's the, you know, the LGBT community, it's, uh, it's uh, whatever is different. It's another nation or the bad technocrats or it's the other party, whatever. So you, you find a scapegoat and you build your own constituency on hate and on fear and on, and you empower your own constituency, but you don't empower them to actually make change. You empower them to hate somebody else. So you give them a sense of mobilizing a sense of power, but it's a power that divides society in a terrible way. We've seen that in the United States. We've seen that in many other parts of the world. That also immobilizes society. That creates terrible problems for society to be able to adapt because any change is then politicized into, okay, who is it? Is it for this side or is it for that side? There's no way to move. So how do we then create a society which is, uh, or a type of leadership which mobilizes in a positive way to be able to take pain, but also to include many more people and many more constituents in a way which you can, you know, it's a bit like giving birth. One is the very passive way of keeping society alone, not, not really involved. It's a bit of a suicide. Another is assassination. You either kill authority or you kill the other guy on the other side, and the other one is really the pain of birth, something new, which is a communal, actually, in our society, is very much a community activity. We all partake, even though women are the center of birth, it is, it is a community spirit. It is it's, you know, family, 
neighborhood, society, you know, it's, we celebrate births, but it's painful. There's labor. What a beautiful analysis of the, the difficulty that comes with adaptive work and all of these different inclinations for us to avoid that work and avoid the heat, avoid the pains that come with adaptive work. Hey there, this is Andy, facilitator and executive coach at Konu. Thanks for tuning in to On the Balcony. Are you curious to learn more about how to exercise leadership or how to thrive in times of uncertainty and change? Over the next several months, Konu is hosting a series of virtual sessions designed to help you bring some of the ideas from this podcast into your work and your life. We'll explore key leadership distinctions that can help you mobilize people to make progress in times of change, regardless of your job title, your position, or your seniority. We'll also explore practices and mindset shifts that can help you stay anchored and grounded when the heat goes up and take care of yourself over the long haul so you don't burn out. You can learn more and sign up at konu.org slash events. And as a regular listener of this podcast, you can use the code BALCONY to waive your registration fee. That's konu.org slash events. And the registration code is BALCONY. Excited to see you there. We're really curious to learn a little bit more from your experience in your various kind of on, on various adaptive challenges. And, and I would love to anchor that around, as always, around a, a quote that you brought. So as probably many good quotes here, but like, which is the one quote, George, that, that you chose for us to, to dig in a little bit more deeply today? Yes, there are many quotes. And I think the one that I feel is, uh, is very pertinent for today's world is the following. Severe distress can make people cruel. Empathy, compassion, and flexibility of mind are sacrificed to the desperate desire for order. What we are facing today is severe distress. We are facing in our world today severe distress. It's uncertainty. It's unpredictability. It's a sense of insecurity. I would add to that there are Real reasons, it's not just complexity. There is a lot of inequality. There's uh, huge inequities in our societies uh, in this globalized world of uh, global capitalism. And again, you have different ways of dealing with this distress. People want when they're in distress. The knee-jerk reaction is, of course, okay, how do we get back to some normalcy, to what, what I know, to what I know is safe? And there is a lot of pressure on leaders then to to just say, yeah, I'll, I'll get things quickly back to normal. You know, I'll calm you down. Because what we are seeing today I, I, is not something temporary. We are seeing a long period ahead of us of major challenges for humanity. Just think of, of the, climate, the climate crisis. These are major adaptation, major changes in our, in our daily lives and the way we consume and the way we produce and the way we communicate or transport, build our housing, our energy. And of course, in our environment. So how do you deal with this, this stress? Because of this fear, it's, it's easy to look for a savior. It's also easy to, to move towards a sort of isolationism, you know, what, you know, build walls, close down your house, close the shutters, let the storm go by. And we've seen this around the world. I mean, Brexit was one of these, one of these reactions, I believe. This is the way you feel to bring back control. That was the, that was the, motto of the Brexiteers who bring back control, but is it really control? Because I often 
you know, when I go through stress and problems, I'd say, oh, I just want to go off to a Greek island, you know, play my guitar, drink my wine, eat my fish, swim, you know, and, and isolate myself from the world. And of course, there is a respite. I mean, it's beautiful to go off to Greek island. But then I remember last year I was on this beautiful island of Skathos. It's one of these Mamma Mia islands. Those who have seen that movie. Mm. We were watching the other island next to us just up in flames. And we were terrified that the fire would come to our island. We have water being warm, warmer uh, because of the climate change. And we're getting tropical fish coming into the Mediterranean that are predatory and very different and in destroying the ecosystem of the Mediterranean. You have the beautiful ruins underneath the, you know, and some, some of the, in, in the waters of, of Greece, but also you have the, in the Mediterranean, all this plastic that's been around the world, of course, down there. So, and of course, you know, you could be on an island, an isolated island, all of a sudden a boat comes from Africa and um, sees, you know, very, very, very people in pain, refugees. So, we cannot isolate ourselves from these problems. So it, rather than giving this false narrative to, to our citizens, we have to be open and really educated. Now, that takes time. And as a leader, you don't always have that time to pace that. No. I would love to talk about pacing, particularly when we think about that Euro crisis, that, that story that you began to tell, because, of course, the time was ticking there quite intensely for massive amount of changes. And and so I, I want to invite you to share a little bit more about sort of how you manage the, the pacing there. Um, but before that, I'll, I'll read the sentence one more time. And as I read it, I invite you to sort of, as you think about that experience, to see what moments images are coming up. So here it comes. Severe distress can make people cruel. Empathy, compassion, and flexibility of mind are sacrificed to the desperate desire for order. What comes to mind is both the anger on the one hand, which really started being expressed, and I would say also exploited by other political figures saying, yeah, well, this is really, really building it up. But then also the desire for order takes the form of um, almost looking for a magical solution, then more sort of a magical formula. So when I was dealing with this crisis, there were many people that would say, well, why didn't you go and ask you know, you had you have a big debt, you know, and people are not buying your your bonds. I don't want to get into the details of of financial crisis, but Greece could not borrow at levels which were sustainable. You know, the interest rate was going up and up and up. The markets were profiting on this. There was a lot of speculation. So people said, "Well, why didn't you go to Putin?" You know, he said, "You know, go to Russia and ask them for um for a loan and uh, you know solve the problem." You know. Actually, I did. I went to many leaders to see if they would be ready to buy Greek debt. They didn't. And I understand why. But of course, uh, Putin was then uh, said, well, are you going to buy some of our military equipment? Anyway, I don't want to get into that. But that was sort of a, a myth that, you know, we could just find somebody to solve our problem. Also, the the idea that possibly uh, you could have um, could just defaulted, you know, and then just would have been easy. And 
we had actually thought about this and we said, well, if we did defaulted, we would not be able to pay wages at all. We would have to, you know, nobody's teachers, doctors, uh, civil servants, uh, military would have to sort of all of a sudden stop. We would also have to move most likely to the drachma from the euro, which would mean about 50% inflation. We basically felt this, everything would go up. So you can imagine this would have been a, a huge thing. But of course, it's very different when people feel the pain and when you tell them what it, the pain could be even worse. But they're saying, yeah, but I'm feeling the pain now. I don't know if it's going to be worse. Maybe there was a different solution. So there is a tendency, obviously, all of us, when we feel this pain, to say, okay, let's just find a way to, to get rid of it rather than seeing, because this is an adaptive challenge for ourselves. But it was also an adaptive challenge for Europe because um, when I went to my, my counterparts in the European Union, I'm the other prime ministers, and they said, well, how did your governments run up such a huge debt and such a huge deficit? The previous government, I, had, I was not the one that did that. It was the previous government. Well, first of all, people knew that in the Europeans, many people knew it in the European Union, but they were sort of hiding it because they were worried about the consequences. So they were not being honest. But then when it was revealed, and I had, it was revealed on my, on my watch, uh, then of course everybody said, okay, why did you do this? And so on. And I analyzed the reasons of it. And I said, I'm ready to make the changes. But what happened then in Europe was they said, okay, this is just a Greek problem. It has nothing to do with the euro, it has nothing to do with Europe, it has nothing to do with the financial crisis. But actually it was this problem that started in Wall Street, the euro as a new construction, we have different economies, different debts, and the markets were seeing that, you know, you have a strong economy in Germany, a weaker economy in Spain or Italy or Greece. So the markets were looking uh, in and they, they were seeing as a very sort of construction, which was not very well thought through. When I would say, well, this is not just a Greek problem, it's also a European problem. People would say, no, 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 it's a Greek problem. So if it's a Greek problem, you have to do all the work. We don't have to do any work. We don't have to do as, as you know, as European Union or as Germans or as uh, French or whatever. You do the work, you do the difficult lifting and uh, things will be fine. Well, as time went by and this was not happening because the markets were saying, well, are you going to really support your own currency? And there are other countries. One after another, countries started to fall. And uh, so it was Greece and it was, uh, uh, you know, Portugal, Ireland, then Cyprus, and it almost became Italy and Spain. And then Draghi came in and said, I will come in and look to the market and I will calm the markets. And that slowed down this process. But then easily scapegoating Greece became another story, which did not allow for an adaptive change in Europe. Because if the Greeks are to blame, you know, these lazy, ozo drinking Greeks, you know, this then it's, it's very simple to blame them, which means we don't, we're the thrifty Germans, you know, and then so on. But of course, what that did is undermine both the capacity for Europe to think of what, how it should really rethink its own structures, but also it undermined the solidarity between Europeans, because then it became a question. And I think that undermine, that's what Europe then felt over the next the few years, which brought up a lot of populism, a lot of isolationism or, uh, you know, um, racism and so on. Yeah. I remember very vividly the um, 
the cruelty that that this sentence talks about in German newspapers, kind of talking about Greek stereotypes. And and as I'm listening to you, you know, it's it's really like in that in that short period, there was like so many adaptive challenges for you to address, both with authority in your own country managing that that really ambitious change agenda but then also that adaptive work within europe and you know around like how do we basically function as europe together how do we show solidarity how do we function as an economic unit that is discovering how that works when suddenly like we have a, a shared currency and potentially different needs and and no real political body that holds all of Europe, but like, you know, all of these authorities that are, have their own constituencies to cater to, but like constituencies have different needs. That seems like a lot of work to be done in a very short amount of time. How Heifetz talks about pacing the work in his chapter. How can you even pace the work <laughs> when the pressures are so high? Is it, is it possible or was it, was it an impossible job that, that you had? It was a very difficult job. So actually after about a year, a year and a half, when we had made some major reforms, we all of a sudden became the poster child in Europe. Oh, wow, you're doing so great. You're doing so, you've done, no other country has ever cut their deficit so much. No other country has, you know, made so many reforms. No, no other country has been able to. So we were the poster child, but the problem was not going away. What was the problem? That Greece had to be able to go out in the markets and borrow at low interest rates. And they saw that this was not happening. Greece was continually being attacked. Why? Because it was part of the euro and the European Union was not supporting. They were not saying, no, we're going to support the, uh, the bonds, Greek bonds, since we're, we're part of a, we're, there's a community. And what happened in Europe actually was because there was no one body, people looked, as Heifel will say, to the silverback gorilla. Uh, you know, who is the leader here? Well, who was the leader? Of course, it was Angela Merkel. Why? Because Germany was the strong economy of Europe. That may change now with this energy problem as we're dealing with Ukraine and, and so on. And it's really hitting German economy very, very hard. But at that time, German economy was the strong economy and the credible economy in the global markets. So what happened was everybody then looked towards Merkel. She was the one to make the decisions. And not only that, but people had to show that they were very close to America and whatever she said. Because if you differentiated yourself from Germany, then the markets might say, oh, maybe this country is, you know, not really that credible. You know, they're not following these rules, you know, they're not following the, what, what Merkel is saying. So then Merkel had this amazingly huge power to decide what should be done. And not only that, but then Greece was sort of the outcast. And I remember other countries that were you know, on the veer of, uh, on the ver and sort of on the edge of possibly being attacked by the markets, like Spain or like Portugal, they would see Greece more like, um, okay, let's not get sick. Let's not catch this virus. You know, let's not be these sort of lepers, you know. So in Greece, I was at the authority to make the changes. Outside of Greece, I was the leper in a sense. So how did you, how did you balance that? And of course, then I had to explain to, to the Greek people. I think what, what the, in the initial stages, we were able to actually make big sacrifices. And the Greek people, I would say the majority of the Greek citizens actually accepted this. They realized there was a problem and there was support. And then when we were able to actually create a mechanism inside the European Union 
which would protect us from the market. So if we needed to borrow from this mechanism, we could do so. I remember coming back after a very difficult uh, struggle and I think it was in Brussels negotiation to create this mechanism. Angela Merkel was not too happy to have this mechanism. Finally, she did accept it. And I remember I came back and I went to a restaurant and people were really following these things, you know, and um, I went to get have have a dinner in a restaurant and uh, all of a sudden everybody stood up and clapped just like that. So they felt that I had I had brought a sense of protection. Europe was going to protect us. That was something they really need. So they, so there was a sense you need people to feel that you're fighting to protect them. What happened, of course, is this dragged on and the initial very difficult sacrifices people felt were not respected by others outside Greece. They were continually bashing the Greeks, continually saying, you know, how lazy, you know, and so on. And even though we had made huge, huge changes. But then there was also the sense that we need to do more and do more because the, the markets were, were continually bashing Greece and we were the problem. So we reached a point where people, the, the stress was so big, so painful, but I realized I could not alone contain this. We'll be back in two weeks with part two of our conversation with Prime Minister Papandreou around chapter 10 of Ronaif. It's his book, Leadership Without Easy Answers. We'll dive more deeply into the work of pacing and inclusion. And we'll look at one of Papandreou's most controversial leadership moves at the time, which was to give people a choice through a referendum. I was giving power to our citizens. You can make the decision. And the traditional political world didn't like this because Had the decision been a positive one in this plebiscite, in this referendum, the other parties would have no say. They would have lost power. And many others, of course. So this was also, so inclusion is not a simple thing either. You are basically changing the power structure. And the old power structures will very possibly react to this. Prime Minister Papandreou will also share some lessons from another leadership case from earlier in his career as foreign minister, where he made significant progress on the Greek-Turkish relations with beautiful insights about taking risks, using momentum, and more work on the theme of inclusion. If you like the show, follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. On the Balcony is brought to you by Kono, growing and provoking leadership, and hosted by me, Michael Kohler. We're produced by Podigy. Editing, Riley Byrne, Daniel Link, cover art by Kenneth Amoyo and Rosie Greenberg. Our music is called Change in Blue by Hannah Gill and the Hours. Thanks for listening. We'll see you for episode 11 on The Balcony. The Balcony.